everyone. My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life, in your own context, to refocus on the story of Jesus. So uh, throughout this throughout this Advent season, um, our worship team has been setting up different prayer stations throughout the church based on different aspects of the Christmas story. Uh, I've really enjoyed this this thing that we did this Advent season. I hope you've uh, taken advantage of it at some time um, because, well, this will be your last chance because, as I mentioned before, we're all staying at words afterwards to help uh, take down the Christmas decorations. Um, but. Way back on the very first week of Advent, Miss Carol set up a prayer station in the narthex, and the prayer activity for this station was uh, you were supposed to pick one of the characters from the nativity scene that you most identified with, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, the wise men, and then you're supposed to kind of reflect and pray about why you felt drawn to that particular character. And uh, we, had, we had a lot of shepherds. In fact, the, the vast majority of of our congregation identified with the shepherds, which, which, which makes sense. Uh, the shepherds are great, right? Because, uh, you know, we're, we're so amazed by, by the Christmas story, by the truth of, of God come in the, in the form of a baby. It makes sense that we would identify with the characters that are just like floored by the angel's enunciation and, and the glory of, of, their, of their proclamation and their appearance while they were just uh, sitting beside their flocks at night. Uh, the shepherds are awesome. But the fact that I think there were only three people that identified with the wise men, me being one of them, um, the fact that almost none of us really identified with the wise men, that's a little bit sad to me because the wise men, in my opinion, are are some of maybe the most underrated and kind of underappreciated characters in the Christmas story. we, we tend to think of them as, as secondary characters. They, uh, only, they show up later after the fact. They're, they're not actually at the nativity scene, according to the, the Christmas story. They, they come to the house later. Uh, they only appear for 12 verses. They're only in Matthew. Uh, we think of them as a bit weird sometimes because they consult star charts and they bring the most inappropriate gifts to the baby shower. We're often not sure what to do with the wise men. But the wise men, or the, or the magi, as the, NRI, the NIV puts it, um, in a sense, in a really unique and artistic way, they represent the grace and mercy of the God that permeates and characterizes the entire Christmas story and even the entire life, death, and resurrection of the baby Jesus. Uh, This story of pagan astrologers that are drawn to the baby in the manger, it reveals just how expansive and all-encompassing and in some ways backwards the love of God really is, the love of a God that would come in the form of a baby infant to take on flesh. So this morning, I have one pretty simple goal for the sermon. I want to make just a few more wise men out of all of you shepherds. Um, and to soften that a little bit, if, you can, if, if the shepherds remain your favorite character after this sermon, that, that's perfectly fine. Uh, but I want to help you identify with the wise men as well, in addition, because otherwise I'm afraid that we'll be missing out on some of the most life-giving, some of the most encouraging, and also some of the most challenging and bracing aspects of the good news that uh, Jesus has to offer us in the form of the Christmas story. So the first thing that we got to do, the first thing we need to do is we got to deal with this term wise men, uh, because I suspect 
that one of the reasons so few people choose to associate with this character is because it feels sort of uh, prideful or, or arrogant to align yourself with a character who has the word wise right in their name. You know, we're afraid people might think like, oh, you chose the wise men, huh? Well, someone is not lacking in confidence. Uh, so, so it's kind of a self-deprecating or, or humble move to pick a different character. But, but what's tragic about this is that it's, it's almost the exact opposite impression that we should have of these characters based on the role that they play in the overarching story of the Bible. And our first point this morning, there's going to be three of them, by the way, uh, is that far from being kind of like haughty and powerful and self-sufficient sages, the characters that we sometimes call the wise men are actually meant to show us that through the Christmas story, God calls outsiders. God calls people that were previously excluded, people that were not in the know. Through the baby Jesus, God calls even those sorts of people to himself. Wise men is just it's just not a great word to refer to these strange characters from the East. It's not very helpful because I think it encourages us to think that what's interesting about these guys is that, you know, they were just able to figure it out, to get all the way to the baby Jesus uh, by their own genius. And um, it's not really the point of the story. Uh, there are two important elements to the identity of these two characters. First is that these characters are Gentiles. Remember that Gentile is just the Bible word for anybody that is not a uh, genetic uh, descendant of Abraham, not, not a cultural and um, ethnic Jew. That's what a Gentile is. They're Gentiles and they are magi. Magi is a title and that's the actual Greek word that sometimes gets translated as wise men. And it means magician. It means probably some form of astrologer, actually. So these are Gentile astrologers. So let's start with Gentile. Why is it important that these characters are Gentiles. Well, for most of the Bible, it, most of the Bible is a story about the Jewish people. God came to Abram all the way back in Genesis 12 in order to build a nation called Israel, the people of God, through whom God was going to call the entire world to himself. And the major heroes and heroines of the Bible, they are all Israelites. Jesus himself was born as Jewish as a Jewish person. All of his disciples were Jewish as well. In a lot of ways, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is a story about one particular people group, the genetic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then in Matthew chapter 2, we hear about these magi from the east. These men are Gentiles, meaning they have no genetic or cultural connection to Israelite superstars like Moses or Samson. And these Gentiles follow a star all the way from some unspecified eastern homeland all the way to the town of David, to Bethlehem, all the way to the baby Jesus. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, these Gentiles are the very first people in the entire story to actually worship the baby as God. And that's a very significant and a very surprising role for a group of Gentiles to play. Secondly, these men are magi. They're magicians. They're astrologers. Um, you might think they were like into horoscopes. Um, I mean, not the kind that we have today, which uh, I, I looked up mine for this past week which I thought was pretty funny. My, my horoscope for this past, if you're a Sagittarius, this is your horoscope for this week. It says that you should be satisfied by your earnings and to keep a low profile. So um, I will not be asking for any raises or anything uh, this week, I guess. But no, these guys, 
they didn't write, you know, the kind of vague nonsense for horoscopejunkie.com, but they came from a pagan tradition that believed that the stars and the planets controlled the lives of humans. They, they tracked the movements of constellations, and they used star charts to predict the future and to interpret dreams. This is not something the Bible is normally a fan of. In fact, the only other time magi show up in the Bible, it's in Acts as the enemy of the church that's trying to corrupt them with false teachings. So it's another very surprising identity for these characters to have. And what's even more shocking is that these practices apparently lead them to the Christ child. The wise, the wise men, the magi, they did not study the Jewish scriptures. They did not have the angels speaking to them out of the clouds like the shepherds did. Instead, they noticed a new star in their charts and they followed it all the way to the Savior. Now, I, don't get me wrong, God put that star in the sky and God was the one who called them to Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew is not saying that, you know, the Magi didn't need God or Christ and that their heathen wisdom was sufficient. But we do need to, I think, wrestle with and question the strange parts of these stories where God seems to use paganism in order to call pagans. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us that these Gentiles, these astrologers, were called to the baby Jesus? And they were called apart from any direct revelation, apart from the Jewish scriptures, without the enunciation of angels, instead being led by their own Eastern wisdom practices. Well, what it means for us depends on, on which character we chose for, for Miss Carol's little activity, who we Christians here this morning at Grifton United Methodist Church identify with. I think often, as Bible-believing, church-going followers of Jesus, we naturally find ourselves identifying with the quote-unquote insiders, with characters like Mary and Joseph who are already in the know, or the shepherds who have been told by God what's going on, who have been told the significance of this little baby boy. Because, you know, we've been going to church for our whole lives. We read the Bible. We go to Sunday school. We don't need such weird things like star charts. And that's good and, and fine, and we should identify with those characters. Um, if we do consider ourselves among the insiders, like the shepherds or Mary and Joseph, those already in the know, then maybe we should take this story of the, Magi, of the Magi as a light chastening, as a reminder of God's freedom and God's inclusivity. God has plans that extend far beyond the walls of this church, far beyond the Bible Belt, um, even America, plans that include the whole world and incorporate all sorts of people that do not look, think, or act like you and I. Uh, this story of the God laying in the manger, this story includes us, but it's not, it's not our story. It's not a story about us. It's God's story that we are blessed to be a part of. And apparently God has the freedom to call all sorts of different kinds of people into this story through whatever means he would like to, even if they seem bizarre or borderline inappropriate to us. The God who sometimes commandeers star charts, God just does not like to be boxed in. But I hope that we can, that we're starting to see how we should identify with the wise men, with the magi as well, in addition. I don't, I'm pretty confident and saying here that uh, those of us here, most of us do not have an extensive Jewish lineage. We're not biological descendants of Abraham. I'm assuming that what we have here is a gathering of Gentiles. And as Gentiles, we should be ecstatic, relieved, overjoyed to find this short story about Easterners called to the Christ child tucked away in Matthew chapter 2. Because this short story proves the all-encompassing nature of the coming of Jesus Christ. By calling the Gentile wise men to the nativity scene, Matthew is telling his readers that the story of this baby, it's not solely a Jewish story. Rather, it's a story of redemption for the entire world, Jew and Gentile alike. This short story, in other words, is the story of our own grafting in, 
That's how the Apostle Paul puts it. Um, It's a story of how we were, through an overwhelming act of God's grace, welcomed and invited to a table that we didn't previously have a seat at. And so next year, when you set up your nativity scene, somewhat ahistorically with the three wise men there, but that's fine. When you set up your wise men, say a quick prayer of thanksgiving. God didn't have to call the wise men, didn't have to call you and me, but he did because at his nature, he is a God of extravagant love that calls all people to a loving relationship with him. And so next year, when you set up your wise men, thank the Lord that the God of the Gentiles, the God of the Jews calls Gentiles as well. All right, second point. The second reason why the Magi are awesome and we should give them a bit more attention. The story of the Magi introduces us to the upside down value system that Jesus is going to preach throughout his entire earthly ministry that says the meek and the lowly and the humble will take precedence and will overcome the wealthy and the powerful. If you look closely at our reading from Matthew, uh, you'll see that, well, the wise men didn't actually get it quite right on their first attempt. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, but the wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. That is a very forgivable error. The towns are very close together, so they they almost got it. But secondly, if you were looking for the birth of a powerful new king in first century Palestine, in first century Israel, you would look in Jerusalem. That's where you would look. Because before the fall of the Israelite kingdom, Jerusalem was the great and mighty city the capital of the nation that was led by the creator himself. It was, it was New York. It was Washington, D.C. It was a place of power and of wealth and influence. And, you know, by the time that our story takes place and the rule of Herod and the Roman Empire, this city is just a shell of its former self. The Jewish people still longed for and they expected a day when Jerusalem would be restored to its former significance and glory. They dreamed about the day. They wrote songs about that day. Uh, Isaiah 60 is a good example of this tradition. Isaiah 60 envisions a day when the nations of the world shall come again to the light of Jerusalem, the kings of the world to the brightness of the dawn, of its dawn. Isaiah sees a day where the abundance of the sea and the wealth of the nations would reside in Jerusalem once more. And so if a king was coming, surely he was going to be coming through Jerusalem in order to make this vision of wealth and power a reality. So the wise men, the magi, they understandably show up in Jerusalem and they say to the king, to King Herod, where is the new king? We've come to worship the new king. This really freaks Herod out uh, because established kings really do not like hearing that their successor has suddenly arrived. Um, And Herod is, you know, he's trying to keep his cool. He gathers all the priests and the scribes, the Old Testament scholars, in other words, of Jerusalem. And he asks them, well, who is this new king and where is he going to be born? Uh, Perhaps Herod, you know, he has heard Jewish people singing Isaiah 60 in the city streets, and he's thinking to himself with with a sinking heart, this must be the guy who's come to restore Jerusalem back to its former glory. He is undoubtedly going to want to bring in his own guy, and and I'm going to be out of luck. But the priests and the scribes surprise him by daring to suggest that Isaiah 60 is not the passage that we should apply in this particular context. They actually point him instead to Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, which is the section of the Old Testament quoted in Matthew, in our reading from Matthew today. It says that you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, you are no my, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Uh, one of the best Old Testament scholars from our day, Walter Brueggemann, one of my favorite at least, he calls this statement from Micah, 
the voice of a peasant hope for the future. Because Bethlehem was not like Jerusalem. It was never a glorious or impressive metropolis. It, it was and had always been a rural town, a country town, a, a working class town, a, a peasant town inhabited by the humble and the lowly. And as such, it represents a different value system than Jerusalem. One that is not as impressed with thriving trade ports and, and skyscrapers and massive protective walls. Brueggemann continues to suggest that the prophet Micah anticipates a leader who is going to bring well-being to his people, quote, not by great political ambition, but by attentiveness to the folks on the ground. Bethlehem, in other words, is not an appropriate birthplace for a Messiah that wants to overthrow King Herod and, and replace him with a, with a different glorious earthly ruler. But it is the perfect birth spot for a different kind of king, a king who has come, as Luke says, to proclaim good news to the poor and freedom to the oppressed, the kind of king that will one day wear a crown of thorns. So you see, the king of the Jews not only calls the entire world to himself, he also asks the world to adjust to what seems like an upside-down set of expectations and values. Because humans, you and I, we tend to be hardwired to value achievement, prestige, to go looking in Jerusalem rather than in Bethlehem. We want to, naturally, we want to accumulate influence and, and, and prestige and wealth. We, we often measure success by, by attendance we, or value by, by material possessions. And so an almost anonymous baby lying in what is an animal's feeding trough undermines all of those expectations. But it's this Savior that calls the Magi, and it's this Savior, by implication, that calls each of us. Third reason why we should identify with the Magi, and more precisely here, a reason why we should strive to be like the Magi, it's that they embrace this unconventional Savior with overwhelming joy. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles out, take a second to open one of the Pew Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Matthew 2, verse 10 and 11. While you're getting there, let me sort of set the scene for you. The wise men, they've spent their entire lives tracking the movement of the stars, and they've spent the past few years tracking this one particular huge, strange star. They believe that it's going to lead them to a great and glorious new king, a king worthy of worship, and so they pack their bags and they head off on a long, arduous, and most likely very dangerous journey following this star. They follow it all the way to the legendary city of Jerusalem, and their excitement and their expectations are rising with each step of the journey. But then they're told that their calculations weren't quite right, and they're instructed to take a sharp right turn off towards the small rural town of Bethlehem. And as, I, as they go, the, the urban signs of wealth and, and prestige, like, they fall away. The buildings all get smaller, the roads aren't quite as smooth, the boutique shops are, are Dollar Trees and the Harris Teeters become Save-A-Lots and the gas stations have bars on the windows. And eventually the star stops right above just a small dingy shack. And how do the wise men react to this strange conclusion of their journey from the land of, of glory and wealth and, and honor to the land of humility and anonymity? What do they do when they find not a conquering king but a peasant child without any credentials whatsoever? Look at verse 10 and verse 11. The first verse says that they are overwhelmed with joy, and in the second they bow down and worship. 
When we discover, or perhaps when we are reminded that we are not called to Jerusalem to worship a king that will give us or our people or our group glory, honor, and recognition, but instead are called to Bethlehem to worship a baby in a small shack, what is our reaction in our, in our, in our heart of hearts? Are we overwhelmed with joy as well? Or are we occasionally, despite ourselves, just a little disappointed? The wisest thing about these wise men, about these magi, is their reactions in verse 10 and 11, the fact that they rejoiced over the Savior of the world despite the humble surroundings that they were not expecting. Fourth point. Yes, I surprise. I have one secret fourth point. Um, I hope that's okay. This really is the last, the last point, in case you're getting hungry. We're almost done. Fourth reason why we should all appreciate the wise men, the magi, is that they're actually the best gift givers of all time, which that might be surprising to you, uh, they are famously bad gift givers sometimes in Christian circles. It's like one of those classic Christmas jokes, right? Like who brings myrrh to a baby shower? Am I right? But it's true. The Magi are the most thoughtful and insightful gift givers in the history of Christmas. To the extent their, their gifts are borderline prophetic. Because they were able to encapsulate the entire identity and story of Jesus Christ in the form of just three Christmas presents. First, gold. Jesus is a king. The authority and power of all these other kings and dictators and presidents that are constantly making noise throughout the pages of our history books and online and in newspapers, their power is temporary, it's fleeting, it's contingent, it's earthly. Jesus is the king of heaven and earth, and all, all authority, honor, and glory ultimately does rest upon his shoulders. And so gold is a gift fit for a king. Frankincense. Frankincense throughout the Old Testament had a very specific and unique purpose. Frankincense is an incense that you would burn as an offering for a god. The Israelites would light frankincense on the altar of Yahweh, the creator, to ask for forgiveness for their sins. By offering Jesus frankincense, the Magi, who, remember, did not grow up reading the Old Testament, did not hear the annunciation of the angels— these simple seekers, as I, as I think either Carol or Miss Becky described them to me in a conversation we were having that afternoon, these simple seekers knew that there was more to this baby lying in the manger. They knew that this was a deity, that this was God nestled in the hay. Frankincense is a gift fit for God. Myrrh. Now, myrrh is a real curveball. Gold, Jesus is the king of heaven and earth. Frankincense, Jesus is the almighty God come in the flesh. Myrrh, during the time of Jesus, was like the smell of a funeral parlor because it was used to embalm dead bodies. It was the smell, in other words, of death. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Jesus the king, Jesus the almighty God, but who has come for a very specific purpose, to die on the cross for the sins of the world. These are the most insightful Christmas gifts in the history of Christmas. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Words podcast brought to you by Grifton United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing the episode with a friend, or making plans to visit us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street. We would love to have the opportunity to greet you in person. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can email me at cpunt at nccumc.org. 
God bless.